Our New Testament reading comes from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. This is the word of God. Our gospel reading comes from Matthew 20, 20 through 28. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left, this is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten heard it, they were angry with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you, but whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in your word, you reveal yourself. Our prayer this morning is very big and very short. That again, you would reveal yourself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we might not just learn and connect dots, but that we might leave knowing that we heard from our God, that we communed with our Redeemer, that we were empowered by, our, by your spirit. So Father, a simple but big prayer to a Father whose heart we know is generous. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Tuck, thanks for the introduction. It is uh, wonderful to be back here at City Church. Um, a lot's happened in the five years since uh, Anna and I left, and I'm encouraged by that. Uh, all the faces I don't know out there um, is evidence of this church thriving and the church plant. And uh, this community has had a huge uh, shaping impact on me and my family, more than just um, in our time in Philadelphia, and a lot more than just horrible driving habits that we took to the slowest-paced corner of America in New Mexico, where we got a reputation in that city from our Philadelphia habits. But um, <laughs> it's very humbling to come back and, uh, and with a very real sense, uh, thinking, who am I the student to come back and teach uh, the masters? But uh, many of you, uh, we took you with us uh, when we left, and so we're so glad to be back. Jonathan, thank you for letting me be a part of this. Um, so did you know that in last year, more people died taking selfies than in shark attacks. It's a really weird statistic. And it's one of many that I came across in a Rolling Stone article called Death by Selfie that I read last year. And this is how the author opens the article. This month, a grown man fell to his death while posing for a picture on a ledge at Machu Picchu, the ancient Incan citadel in Peru. Death by selfie at a temple built for human sacrifice begs the question. <laughs> how far would you go to get that killer shot? From falling down the steps of the Taj Mahal to being gored alive by wild animals, here are the 11 most disturbing stories of selfies gone disastrously wrong. I won't read all 11, but there's a few you should know about. There was the backpacker in Colorado who, upon summiting a 14,000-foot peak in a lightning storm, pulled out a selfie stick to take a picture of himself uh, in his last moment. There was the uh, college student running with the bulls in Pamplona who paused to pull out his camera and take a picture and was gored. There is the man in China who snuck into the uh, enclosure of an adult male bull walrus to take a selfie with the walrus before he was attacked. There were the two Russian soldiers posing with a live grenade. Those were the most benign ones of the list of 11. What's unique about this phenomenon of selfies isn't that we love taking pictures of glorious, great, interesting things. That's why the camera was invented, right? What's unique about the trend with selfies is the lengths that we're willing to go to to squeeze our face into the frame of greatness and glory. That's what's new and interesting about this phenomenon is that we are literally dying for a taste of glory. We're literally dying to grab hold of greatness and to be associated with greatness that's right behind us, that it might rub off on us publicly too. Sometimes we name drop, we make a point of letting you know where we went to school or which professor our thesis was with. There's this inner impulse to be associated publicly with greatness and with glory. And uh, I'm five years older than last time I saw you. I'm not a curmudgeon yet, so I don't have a problem with the selfie thing. But is it, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to suggest that inside of all of us, you as well, there is this impulse, however strong or weak, for self-promotion. Perhaps this impulse of seeking this public greatness or this glory, getting your face in the frame of what is glorious and powerful. And that is what I think is going on in this passage uh, in particular. And in this passage, actually even more specifically, 
It's how we can use ministry, how we can use even life in the church, even life with Jesus as a tool to seek public greatness and public glory. Uh, Martin Luther was famous for saying that what, what causes this inner impulse, this inner instinct? He said that one effect sin has had on a human being is that it's made us incurvatus in se, or curved in on ourselves. So we kind of come out of the womb and I'm bent towards me, which means I think of me and dream of me and position me and prioritize me. And if you do this too, imagine what community is like. Imagine what church can be like if we're all bent towards self in a way from others and God. Scripture names uh, the condition pride perhaps as a, as a, a brute category uh, for this. And I'm convinced that's what's going on. It's one of the two dimensions of what's going on in James and John's hearts and what's going on here. We'll talk about that first and the second in a moment. Of course, their pride, it's veiled in really good intentions. I don't doubt, and you shouldn't either, that James and John loved Jesus. They wanted to be a part of what he was doing. This isn't like crass narcissism. They wanted to be a part of what he's doing. But they had become attached to kind of the, the junior varsity version of greatness and glory. And they had missed the real thing. And so bl not blatantly, but subtly, they're using Jesus to pursue this greatness and their glory. And so their, their request to Jesus through mom isn't just a, hey, Jesus, can you save us a seat? Their request, it's more than that. The moment they're asking to be with Jesus in, in your kingdom, is more like the State of the Union. You remember? Every January, the president gives his speech, and who's sitting right behind him in the frame of the camera for the entirety of it? The vice president and the speaker of the house, to his right and to his left. James and John are asking for those seats. Jesus, when your kingdom comes, in your kingdom, can we sit there, right behind you, in greatness and in glory. And before they get such a bad rap, it's not just the two of them. It's the other ten as well. Matthew's kind enough to do arithmetic for us. I think verse 24 he says, And when the ten heard about the other two, they were indignant. They were bent out of shape. They were angry. Twelve out of twelve. One hundred percent. Matthew wants us to know the math here. Ten plus two. All of them had this inner impulse. They were upset not so much out of righteous indignation, but out of indignation. They got there first. They got the best seats. We should have asked for those first. And that's where it's coming from. More than that, this is something we know from the previous chapters leading up to this, both in Matthew and Mark, that this was somewhat of a fixation for the disciples. The seating arrangement when Jesus came in manifest glory, in his moment, in that shining moment. Because they'd already asked a little bit earlier than this, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And of course, Jesus pulls up a little rug rat and he says this one. And unless you become like this child, you won't know what this kingdom is like. Won't be a part of it. It was continually on the minds of his disciples and so when the other ten learn of the request that James and John's mom had made of Jesus, uh, they were indignant, they were upset. And as we're kind of looking at this through the angle of pride, 
it's helpful to realize why they're upset is because they felt what had, be, what had been community amongst the disciples turned into competition. Competition's always an element of pride. C.S. Lewis is brilliant. Mere Christianity devotes a whole chapter to what he calls the great sin, pride. He says this, each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It's because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I'm so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Now, what you want to get clear about pride is this. It's essentially competitive. By its own nature, it's competitive. The other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone too. Left to ourselves, this is how this inner impulse, this self-promotion, this um, contentment with a lesser form of greatness and glory manifests itself in pride, and it makes us competitors with one another, and it makes community very lonely, and it makes mission very erratic when everyone's moving out in their own direction, using ministry, using ministry as a tool to advance ourselves uh, in the community. And Jesus says, I won't have any of it, not in this house, not in my family. The million-dollar question is, how, how? Are we just left with a moral command that we say, okay, thanks for the diagnosis, thanks for the redirection. Do I just walk out the door and kind of line my ducks up now and, and, and move on? How do we do what Jesus said? How do we expunge this from our hearts? Here's what we're going to make of this, I think, and here's the other angle other than pride. It's important for us to keep in mind that James, John, their mother, the other ten are not sociopaths. This wasn't like crass or brute narcissism where they're like pushing the women and children out of the way so they can get in the front of the line before everybody else, right? Uh, we can assume that, well, actually we know from the rest of the Gospels, these twelve loved each other more or less. This was a very rare moment of a public spat. More or less they got along. They bought in. They'd given up a lot. They, they loved Jesus. They were trying to connect the dots and figure out who he was and what he was doing. But they were on board. And so this isn't that crass form of pride that's pushing everybody else on the way to get a leg up. But I think something deeper is going on, even deeper than pride. In a lot of settings or counseling, perhaps, um, sometimes you'll ask a question. And the counselor, the person talking to you will ask, well, what's the question beneath the question? There's a presenting question, and then there's the real question, the real thing you're actually interested about or struggling with or wrestling with. And something like that is going on here. The presenting question, the, the question that gets spoken and verbalized is, uh, and not just from the mom, we know they put them up to it. Mark's account gives a little more clarity there. James, John, and their mother, their, their verbalized question is, Jesus, 
in your kingdom, can we sit at your left and at your right hand? That's the question that got aired publicly. But I think the question beneath that question was one that you'll be able to relate to a lot more. And it's this, but what about me? That's a question I hear every day from my three-and-a-half-year-old, my beloved Eli. And it comes up whenever we give anything to his sister or brother. I give my two-and-a-half-year-old Addie a cup of yogurt, and Eli comes up and says, but, Dada, what about me? Addie gets to watch a show. Eli comes up, but, Dada, what about me? Throughout the day, that's the chorus of our house, but what about me? You know right now you never outgrow that question because you ask that in your workplace. When's my day going to come? When's the boss going to notice what I do and stop overlooking me? When is my spouse going to appreciate me? Who's going to take care of me? Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay in Jesus' kingdom when he comes? Am I going to be okay on the other side of this big decision or big life moment? But what about me? I think that's the real question. That's the question beneath the question James and John and all of the other ten are wrestling with. Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to look out for me? Am I going to be okay in your kingdom, Jesus? Is there going to be a place for me? That's what they want to know, and that's what you want to know, too. I know it. No matter your age or your station of life, you're asking that question. So it's important to see what does Jesus do with this question. Our heart's desire for the answer to that question, but what about me, to be some kind of positional or circumstantial answer. James and John ask the question, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? And what they're asking for is musical chairs or seating arrangements. Can we jostle up the name placards so we can be at the, you know, the place of honor with you, the place in the camera frame? But what they get from Jesus is not a circumstantial or positional answer. Can you resonate with that, by the way? Like, you want a positional answer from God. God, what about, but what about me, Lord? In this situation, what about me and my interests and what I feel I need? or what I actually need. We want the tangible, concrete blessing there. We want the rearrangement. We want the boss, the answer to the prayer to be the boss says, you know, I've really overlooked how critical you are to what we do here. Thank you. Or we want, uh, if you're in ministry, (laughs) you want the invite to be the seminar speaker. You want the invite to go do some other uh, other speaking arrangement or something. And, and, And in that moment, what about me? And we want, a, we want an answer where someone emails you and says, you know, you just came to mind. You're so amazing. Thank you. And Jesus doesn't give them what they want. And here's why. Because they don't know what they want. And Jesus calls them on it. Did you pick up the back and forth? He says, verse 22, they ask their question. Jesus says, what do you want? Declare that these two sons of mine will sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. He says, what do you want? She makes her request known. And he says, you don't know what you're asking. 
The question that James and John's mother asks will not require seating arrangement changes, and it will not require first-come, first-serve arrangements. And Jesus knows that. The request that James and John and their mother, the real request, who's going to take care of me? But what about me? Who's going to look out for me? Is there a place for me? That request requires the drinking of a cup, the climbing of a tree, a journey to Jerusalem, rejection by the Father, mockery by the people, trading spaces with you, raising up to new life forever. That's what the real question beneath the question required. And so Jesus is so lonely in this moment because do you, could you imagine feeling more ostracized and isolated when all of your people so don't get it in your moment of need? Mark 10 bookends this episode with, with uh, 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 Jesus saying, I'm going to be crucified and handed over to the chief priest and him taking the first step to go be crucified. It's bookended with this in the middle. Same with Matthew. If you go back right before this passage, Jesus is saying the Son of Man must be given over and crucified. And he gets this question. Will you take care of me? But what about me? They expected a shallow answer and so do we. But did you connect last week that Jesus walking his way to that hill in Jerusalem, drinking that cup of wrath, taking that penalty, being pushed away that you might be brought in. Do you see in that moment Jesus answering the question in the loudest way imaginable, I will take care of you. This is your place that I've made for you in my kingdom. Yes, someone's going to take care of you. Yes, someone's going to watch over you. Yes, I'm preparing a place for you. Yes, you will be okay. But in, in, in such an unimaginably more profound and deep way than we ever imagined. And he didn't just do that to reconcile you to your God. He did that to free you from you. This is what he talks about when he says, the son of man lays down his life as a ransom. It's a slave trading term. If you want to set this person free, money's got to be put down. Something's got to be given away to break this person out of bondage. We are consigned to a life of what James and John are doing, jockeying for position, competitive pride, settling for tiny, itty-bitty versions of greatness and glory, squeezing our frame into every glorious thing in this life to be publicly associated with greatness. We are consigned to that life apart from Jesus ransoming you out of it. He says no man can serve two masters. There's only room for one. We can either be enslaved to self or we can be bonded, enslaved in service to Jesus, the true liberator. So part of what Jesus says here in the moral imperative of if you want to be great, you've got to become a servant. If you want to be at the front of the line, you've got to go to the end of the line. If you want to be promoted, you've got to be demoted. The, the way that that hits us, if you are ransomed, is this is your potential. This is, this is, lo, this is fruit on the tree to be grabbed and picked now by virtue of the Spirit working in you. You can do this, not perfectly, but you can, you can move in this direction and love God and love neighbor. 
better. And for those of us still enslaved to self, don't you see and hear Jesus in this moment answering your question, who's going to take care of me? But what about me? Jesus answers on the cross, I'll take care of you in the ways you actually need to be taken care of. I'll set you free from death. I'll set you free from sin. I'll set you free from you that you might begin to live like me. I want to finish with this story. This is a, this is a picture of how true greatness intersects with someone like Jesus taking care of us in the ways that we need. I was at a village inn, which is kind of the Western equivalent of, um, I, there's not Waffle Houses here. I don't know what the Pennsylvania equivalent of village inn or Waffle House is, but a shady diner uh, is where I was. Very late at night, working on a sermon. It's probably two in the morning, and I, just out of the corner of my eye, I notice an older couple, probably in their 60s, walk in, and um, I am doing my work, but I hear groaning, the occasional moan or groan, and so I'm kind of looking out of the corner of my eye, and I hear the clatter of crutches hit the ground, There's that aluminum clanking sound, and I look over there, and uh, it was a, a husband and a wife who had uh, come in for dinner, and the husband had obviously been devastated by Lou Gehrig's disease, all the telltale signs of that. And uh, it had essentially left him with the abilities of a, of a small child, just in terms of motor skills. And his wife sat there um, quietly with him. There was no fanfare. Uh, they were noticed, noticed by no one but me. And uh, this was every meal for her. So they ordered their food, and she fed him bite by bite, wiped the corners of his mouth when the food started to come out. When he started to drool, wiped it away. And I watched as her food sat uneaten until about 30 seconds before they left when she gobbled it down. But the bulk of her time was feeding her husband. And then when he would need a break, they'd sit there just silently or she'd say something and they'd both kind of giggle or moan. And he needed to use the restroom at some point. So she gets up from her side of the table and she's got a limp too. Caring for him has taken a toll on her. She has started to bear the same physical disabilities he bears from taking care of him. And she limps him to the bathroom under her arm, and they come back a little bit later. And they eventually walk out of that village inn, back into anonymity and back into another 20 years of nobody noticing what normal life is like for her and like for him. And I saw in that moment at this shady village inn at 2 in the morning, true greatness. And I saw glory. Because I saw one who bore the infirmities and the weakness of the one she was serving, putting him first, putting his needs first, all at a cost to her own. And I saw in that moment of greatness and glory a picture of Jesus laying down his life for his sheep, giving himself away as a ransom for many. That's what true greatness looks like. That's what glory looks like. And it's very different than the kinds of greatness and glory that we are literally dying to squeeze our face in the frame of. And this is what it means that Jesus in his greatness and in his hour of glory took care of you and answered your question, but what about me? 
So Jonathan, as you um, will be ordained today and set apart for this ministry, there's a warning in the passage because these are all pastors, all 12 of them who were caught up in this. And in, in a way, there's a, there's a temptation to perhaps see what's about to happen as Jonathan's promotion. But in the economy of the kingdom of God, this is your demotion. And that's a great and glorious thing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a marvelous joy that you gave yourself away as a ransom. You laid your life down. You became a servant. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but came to serve. That is greatness. That is glory. Oh, that you would give us an unrelenting desire and taste and hunger for that greatness, for that glory, for you yourself who love us this way. We pray for our brother Jonathan that you would not allow him to escape the pursuit of that kind of greatness and that kind of glory. We ask this in your name. Amen.